Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss if there is ever another war in Europe it will come out of some damned silly thing in the Balkans Otto von Bismarck hello and welcome to the when diplomacy fails special on world war one episode 20.4 the July Crisis of 1914. This episode is one I've been waiting to do since I started When Diplomacy Fails. When people talk about When Diplomacy Fails, I want them to say, oh, have you heard of his special on World War One? It's like nine episodes long. The idea is that by doing World War One in this level of detail, I'll have satisfied my original reasons for starting this, and can then pay attention to what other people want. Well, theoretically anyway, but I don't want to bore you with rambling anymore, so on to the episode we go. I will now take you to the year 1914. As early as the year 1912, Britain had in fact hosted a conference in London, which had been designed to ease the tension in the Balkans by creating an independent Albania out of the Ottoman retreat. This had the double effect of appeasing Austria, who didn't want Serbia to gain a port in the Adriatic, while also somewhat annoying Russia and Serbia, who both wanted Serbia to have that port. Montenegro also refused to agree to the creation of an independent Albania on the Adriatic, but both Serbia and Montenegro eventually agreed to recognise Albania and its territory once significant pressure had been applied. The problems that a growing Serbia placed in front of Britain were not felt as intensely as they would have been to those nations closer to the Balkans, since a continued peace depending on everyone getting along, and Serbia was not getting on well with any one of its neighbours in 1913, especially Austria-Hungary. It was so much simpler, British and indeed European statesmen would likely have lamented, when the Ottomans just controlled it all. But nationalism would not allow it, and the self-determination present within the Balkan countries of Bulgaria, Romania, Serbia, Montenegro, Greece, and to an extent Macedonia, all put Europe on edge. Each one of these states were determined to prove themselves, and following this had conducted treaties and established relations of their own with the great powers. Most notably, Austria had begun to court Bulgaria, while Russia enjoyed even tighter relations with Serbia. This meant that if either Bulgaria or Serbia acted out, the ensuing reactions of their de facto allies could escalate the situation. It had taken three years of instability in the Balkans to change the situation so drastically for the concert of Europe. Imagine what three more years of that instability would do. 
1913 should have been the year that everyone gathered around and developed contingency plans for what everyone would do should war break out again in the Balkans. To an extent, they did do this. The London Conference in 1912 had given the Balkan states the seal of approval by the great powers and had seen Russia and Germany actually work together to achieve peace. Germany restrained Austria, while Russia restrained the Montenegrins and Serbs. But Germany's considerate and peaceful approach to the Balkans ended once the Second Balkan War erupted, and Serbia grew in power at the expense of Bulgaria and Greece. Now German statesmen saw Serbia in the same light as Austrian statesmen, i.e. as a Russian satellite state. Additionally, Helmut von Malka, nephew of von Malka the Elder, had felt more confident in the German army's strength following the passing of a number of military bills in 1912 and 13, and thus he began to advise the Kaiser to take a harsher stance in Balkan affairs, and give more support to Austria there, since Germany could now back it up militarily if required. Count Leopold von Berchtold had replaced Arenthal as Foreign Minister of Austria in February 1912, and so it was his policy that guided the country at this time, for better or worse. In the Second Balkan War, Austria had her eyes firmly on Serbia and what Serbia was doing. The last thing Austria wanted was an enlarged Serbia on her doorstep that could plunge her country into a nationalistic collapse. So Austria watched Serbia intensely and cringed as she grew stronger with victory against the thoroughly assailed Bulgaria. When Serbia invaded Albania in mid-1913 and tried to claim for herself a port, she was instantly set upon by the weight of Austrian diplomacy. Suddenly, Albania was the victim and Austria was honour-bound to assist it. Although no war was declared, an ultimatum was sent to Belgrade demanding that the Serbians withdraw from Albanian soil. At this time, Berchtold received vocal support and guarantees from the Kaiser in the event of war, and so his stance became more belligerent towards Serbia. As William Carr, in his book A History of Germany 1815-1990, explains, quote, Thus fortified, Berchtold sent an ultimatum to Serbia ordering her troops out within eight days. The Serbs, clearly in the wrong and without Russian support, complied. Berchtold was elated by his victory, but a dangerous precedent had been established. Where patient diplomacy had failed, an ultimatum backed by force succeeded. This lesson was not lost on the Ballhausplatz in the summer of 1914. This time, Germany's support of Austrian moves was not down purely to the existence of their alliance. Germany had deep fears that an enlarged Serbia would upset the Schleifen plan and prevent Austria from holding the bulk of Russia while Germany defeated France. If Serbia could pose such a threat to her plans, Serbia should be destroyed in a preemptive attack that would remove her from the equation and enable Austria to expand into the Balkans with enough strength to counteract Russian moves. The German plan also hoped for a Bulgaria that could act independently enough to prove something of a concern to Russian strategists along the same line that Serbia complicated her aims. Put in this vein of thinking, the idea that a preemptive strike against Serbia was necessary made good strategic sense. A powerful Serbia was little more than a satellite of Russia, and thus Serbia could use her Russian friendship to tie enough of Austria down to ruin Germany's Schleifen plan and perhaps even cost her the war. The Kaiser was informed of these developments through von Malka, who himself often advocated a short, sharp war against Serbia that would extinguish her from Europe. The Kaiser, of course, restrained him, since such moves would generate outcry and probably worse, but the idea that Serbia had grown from a thorn in Austria's side to a German strategic problem was a very real one at this stage. 
As James Joll explains, however, Germany did not exactly try to defuse the Russian situation. Quote, In the summer of 1913, Wilhelm II had assured both the Chief of the General Staff and the Foreign Minister of Austria-Hungary that the time for decisive military action in the Balkans was drawing near, and that Germany could be relied on for support. In February 1914, Russian military intelligence had intercepted two German memoranda that expressed determination to capture Constantinople should the Ottoman Empire collapse, and it also suggested ways to prepare German public opinion for the coming war with Russia and France. These revelations convinced the Russians that a combined Austro-German effort would soon be made to establish predominance in the Balkans and at the Straits. They replied to this threat by consolidating their relationship with France and Britain, and by relying on Serbia, with her army of 200,000 men and 200,000 reservists, to act as the bastion against further Austrian expansion. End quote. Ironically at this time, both the Austro-German and Russo-Serb camps feared the other's plans, because as we saw, Germany's entire ability to fight was based upon the predictions of the Schleifen Plan, and her generals had created no alternatives or at least rehearsed none so consistently as that plan. Serbia was under pressure from Austria because of what it suggested to Austria's other ethnic minorities, who numbered over 10, about self-rule in Europe. Croats, Bosnians, Poles, Czechs and Slovaks were presented with the idea that they were just as capable to rule themselves as an empire was to rule over them, and so the emergency response to this feared ethnic epiphany within Austria was the Austrian plan to destroy the state of Serbia and shatter the nationalistic dreams of her chafing minorities. Germany pressured Serbia because Serbia was now the single biggest wildcard in Germany's plans, and Germany did not like wildcards. Serbia viewed the Serb minority within Austria as part of a long-term state plan of reunification, while the Bosnians could be absorbed as part of a super-Slav state, also containing Albania, and, crucially, including access to the supply and trade routes of the Adriatic Sea. Serbia had been established in Europe by war. She had been strengthened by war, and her statesmen believed she would also have to be defended by war in the near future. Germany could be handled by Russia. But Russia was now depending on Serbia to move and fight faster than her, to give Russia's enormous military time to move west, across the French-built railways and into the battlefield. It would be a war she had to win, because if Russia lost all allies in the Balkans, it was just a short walk to the Dardanelles, where Russian commerce would be severely affected. France was also important in these war games, because they could occupy Germany, and possibly Austria, in the far west. But would France come to aid Russia in the Balkans? France was a central part of the Schleifen Plan, and because of this, Germany had passed a new army bill in January 1913, which increased Germany's peacetime strength steadily, from 663,000 to a solid 800,000 in 1914, which fit in snugly with the plan of delivering that knockout punch to France that the Schleifen Plan centred on. France responded to this act by increasing the time the average soldier spent in compulsive military service, while in December 1913, Russia made the most notable addition of all, a huge addition of 500,000 men to the peacetime army, and a dangerous demonstration of her raw manpower reserves. Within each country, the goal had been the same, increased military might to have a bigger say at the table. However, as we'll soon see, acquiring such might of arms for perhaps the first time on such a level, European dealings became more and more belligerent and aggressive with each passing month, as all became less prepared to make the necessary sacrifices for peace. 
With the increase in arms came the need to justify it to the people, and in all states this was done differently. In Britain, the focus was placed on the navy, and the symbol of naval pride that the navy brought to the nation. Expense was declared and emphasised to be irrelevant early on in the naval race, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lloyd George, often made vocal promises to the public of his ability to raise a million pounds in a year if the need arose to protect the British naval supremacy. The idea that our army was to be increased too was less pronounced, certainly not at this stage when British public opinion did not identify with the Balkan struggle and saw only the German navy as a cause for concern. One had to look on the continent to see real evidence of propaganda that hadn't existed in such force before. William Carr explains well the motives and methods behind the propaganda in continental Europe. Quote, Rearmament was accompanied in all countries by propaganda campaigns to persuade the ordinary citizen that the growing risk of war justified additional military expenditure. The anxiety neurosis which had afflicted diplomats for some time now gripped the peoples of Europe. The articulate section of public opinion now believed war to be inevitable, a belief which encouraged the growth of bellicose nationalism in all lands. By the beginning of 1913, Wilhelm II believed in the inevitability of war, and had ceased to care whether Austria was in check or not. When Colonel House, an American politician and friend of President Wilson, visited Berlin in 1913, he was appalled by the bellicosity he encountered in military circles, and depressed by the prevailing mood of chauvinism and fatalism in high places. The whole of Europe is charged with electricity, he wrote. Everyone's nerves are tense. It needs only a spark to set the whole thing off. An apt comment indeed, for the war mentality, though more pronounced in Germany than elsewhere, was not peculiar to that country. The politically active classes of France and Russia were equally chauvinistic and believed that war was inevitable. Russo-German relations reached their lowest ebb at this time, because in late 1913, Germany began to take a special interest in Ottoman affairs. The Ottoman army had been badly mauled in the Balkan Wars, and sought German help in reforming and training it up to a European standard. The Kaiser sent General Lehmann von Sanders to Turkey, with a five-year plan to transform the Ottoman armies. But when von Sanders arrived, he was placed in control of the 1st Turkish Army Corps, stationed in Constantinople. This development put Russia on edge, for she believed Germany was trying to create a military satellite out of Turkey, in Russia's most vulnerable position. German-controlled straits were a Russian nightmare, and she vigorously protested the German decisions. Wilhelm II was surprised at the Russian response, since he had actually not intended Russia to feel so threatened. Though it is highly unlikely von Sanders was sent to Turkey without any strategic considerations in mind. Germany replaced von Sanders in January 1914 in an attempt of appeasement, but Russia was not satisfied. She embarked on a ginormous rearmament program, and endeavoured to transform the Triple Entente into a solid alliance so that Germany could never threaten her interests, intentionally or otherwise, again. This was the clearest sign to the Austro-German camp of Russia's status as an enemy, irreconcilable and irredeemable except through war itself. The Kaiser remarked in February 1914, Russo-Prussian relations are dead once and for all, we have become enemies. The press on both sides became more vocal about war, Germany with its upcoming conflict with the Slavs, and Russia with its need to realise its destiny and conquer Constantinople, while also advising France of the necessity in preparing for war in the near future. Thus, an aggressive, belligerent and acidic Russo-Central power relationship carried on, even as the summer of 1914 approached. 
I figure we may as well get into the now infamous events of the July crisis, since we've got a lot of ground to cover. On June 28, 1914, Gavrilo Princip shot the Austrian Archduke and heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, Franz Ferdinand, in the neck, while another bullet struck his wife Sophie in the abdomen. The scene was a grisly one. Ferdinand's neck spurted blood all over the driver and his uniform, while Sophie died from internal bleeding before the car had even been secured. Gavrilo Princip, a 19-year-old from a small village in Bosnia, had just assassinated the next in line to Austria's ancient throne. The man himself led an unremarkable life, and his name would never have been known to history had the driver of the Archduke and his wife not taken the wrong turn on the afternoon of the 28th of June. Princip was eating his sandwich at the time, and had figured that the attempts of his comrades, the members of the irredentist terrorist organisation the Black Hand, had failed, and that the opportunity to assassinate the Emperor was lost. Then he saw a splendid car turn towards the street, and then he recognised the passengers. Princip did not pass up the opportunity to change world history. He calmly aimed his firearm, a 32 calibre FN Model 1910 pistol, and fired just two shots at the Archduke's car, which had stopped to turn around once the driver realised his mistake in taking the wrong turn. The Archduke would never even have been in that place at the time, had he not decided on a whim to travel to the hospital and visit the victims of a bomb attack also instigated by the Black Hand that had been meant for his car earlier in the day. It was as though fate had delivered the Archduke to Princip. It was as though Europe was dying for an excuse to put all they had to the test. It was as though, as Churchill put it, the world wished to suffer. But the speed and terror of this attack on the Archduke contrasts with the slow speed at which Austria and the whole world reacted to the news of the assassination. Although Austria had been thoroughly insulted by the assassination, and many elements within her government demanded repercussions for the act, which was believed to have originated from some secret organisation in Serbia, Austria itself was divided on the best course of action. William Carr notes on the days that followed, quote, The news of the assassination engendered a mood of desperation in Vienna. Ballhausplatz officials called for stern measures for it was clear from the outset that the murders had been planned by a powerful Serbian secret society. Conrad urged preventative war against Serbia. Tisa, the Hungarian minister-president, opposed war, while Berchtold hesitated as usual. The factor which tipped the scales in favour of war was the unofficial advice from Berlin to the effect that Germany expected her ally to stand up to Serbia. When Austria approached Germany formally to ask for her advice, she was left in no doubt that Berlin favoured stern measures. End quote. The month in between the assassination and the infamous ultimatum that Austria sent to Serbia is full of Austrian debates over whether the conflict should be localised, or whether Russia would come to the aid of Serbia. Serbia simply could not be allowed to get away with the act of assassinating Austria's heir to the imperial throne without a concerted show of force on the part of Austria. The mood at the time demanded action of some sort that would remind Europe of Austria's power and hopefully make its minorities and chafing populations forget its relative weaknesses. I know you may be sick of hearing from them, but William Carr and James Jaw's respective books all cover the diplomacy and foreign policy during this time so well that you really don't need another source for the period. Certainly, I will be pulling in more academic voices as we progress, even later on in this episode, but for the moment, I'll quote James Jaw again. Quote, When on the 4th of July, the Emperor Franz Joseph wrote to Wilhelm II that he wished to eliminate Serbia as a great power factor in the Balkans, 
he received a sympathetic response. After consulting Chancellor Holwig, the Kaiser had urged Austria-Hungary to make war on Serbia, issuing what has long been referred to as the blank check in assuring the Austrians of support, even if this meant going to war with Russia. End quote. But there was the belief within German and Austrian circles that a great diplomatic or even military victory could be won against Serbia without any Russian or French involvement at all. With such a victory, Austria would be strengthened, Russia weakened, and by extension, so would France. The pro-German elements within St. Petersburg may have even attempted to switch Russia's loyalty if France proved unwilling to support it yet again. A weakened Russia could be kept on side, and France would no longer be an issue in Europe. It was so easy to reason that France would fail to support its ally just like in the Bosnian crisis of before, or that Russia would not actually go to war for the sake of Serbia. Austro-German statesmen looked at the past few years of European diplomacy as a sign of the Franco-Russian weakness. Britain was not even considered, since it was well known she would never go to war for something in the Balkans. But would she support her Entente members? It was a considerable gamble, and that explains why it took so long for a course of action to be agreed upon in the summer of 1914. However, as James Joll explains, by taking so long in their decision-making process, Austria had negated the best opportunities open to her. Quote, the Kaiser did not believe that Russia would intervene, for this would require the Tsar to come out in support of the assassins, which seemed a most unlikely position for any monarch to take. The situation had all the makings of a great diplomatic and political triumph. He therefore saw no need to alter his summer vacation plans and proceeded to leave on a cruise. No preparations for war were made. Holweg foresaw the disintegration of the Triple Entente. The Germans believed they had a great diplomatic victory in their grasp. Speed was essential to such a victory. Austria-Hungary would have to act quickly to present Serbia with a fait accompli while the memory of the assassination was still vivid. But the Austrians did not move quickly, as the politicians proved to be badly divided on the next step to be taken. The Foreign Minister Berchtold proposed to launch a surprise attack, while the Hungarian Prime Minister Count Tisa insisted that some diplomatic preparation was necessary if Austria was not to be branded the aggressor. End quote. Austria was not planning for a war against Serbia, it was instead planning for the elimination of that country from the Balkans, to be replaced by Austrian administration and with some imperial province of another name. Serbia's very existence threatened to unravel Austria because of what Serbia promised its population. The minorities within Austria needed little prompting to protest at their lack of representation in the German and Hungarian dominated state. But if war with Serbia never came, and if Serbia was allowed to grow and increase in influence, surely it was only a matter of time before those minorities within Austria sought success in the pursuing of national self-rule and then tried to strike out on their own. It was a very real fear that the demographic makeup of Austria-Hungary would prove to be its undoing. And it's not like Austria had suddenly decided to draw up war plans with Serbia. Austro-Serb relations have been straining ever since the 20th century, but only really heated up in 1912, once the Balkan Wars began and Austria saw Serbia expand, and promise its minorities more than imperial rule. If Serbia was extinguished, Austria would have a free hand in the Balkans. No one power would be able to stop her crusade through all of the former Ottoman territories. Her rule would make the region stable again, she would be the new policeman of the area and would nip Russian plans for the region in the bud. By doing this, it would be clear that Austria and Germany were equals, and that although Germany could both control over German-speaking peoples, 
Austria could claim a real European empire, which would be a testament to her grand imperial progress. It was a tempting proposition, and if Russia did not intervene, it was a possibility. Austro-Hungarian statesmen could be forgiving for believing that the whole thing would stay localised, and since Germany was supporting them, and since Russia was not mobilised for war, Serbia appeared ripe for the taking. But it was not so straightforward. Just as Germany could not abandon Austria with its Balkan policies, Russia could not abandon Serbia. If Serbia was abandoned after having signed an alliance with Russia, then Russia would be viewed as a second-class power that, once again, had been forced to back down in the face of Austrian or German threats. This mindset, that we cannot allow repeat of the past humiliation, was also held in France, where French statesmen had given their support to a Russian act of defence in Serbia's interests. The Franco-Russian camp foresaw a series of chain reactions should Russia not come to the aid of Serbia, the same chain reactions that Austria and Germany foresaw. A Balkans without Serbia meant a stronger Austria, a stronger Austria meant a stronger Germany, which meant a weaker Russia, which meant a weaker France. France wanted to prove, just like Russia, that the previous humiliations in Morocco were a once-off and could be confined to history. France would act boldly, empowered by Russia, and it would not abandon its eastern ally in the face of Austro-German demands, whether this meant war or not. There was a lot at stake, a lot more than I initially realised when I started this episode, so this makes the whole breakdown that comes after a little easier to understand. Nobody was willing to give ground, because once Austria delivered the ultimatum to Serbia, on the 23rd of July there was no going back. If Austria recalled its ultimatum, which it couldn't do anyway, it would represent a hideous embarrassment for a fractured state. If Russia or France failed to act, their series of alliances would have been for naught, and Austro-German aggression would have been proven supreme yet again. If Germany did not support its ally, its security would notably dip. James Joll notes the course of action that was taken by Austria. Quote, Tisa proposed to issue a list of stiff but not impossible demands which, if accepted, would give Austria almost everything she needed without resorting to war. The rest of the ministers agreed on July the 7th to the idea of presenting Serbia with a series of demands. They also agreed there should be no mobilisation until these demands had been rejected and an ultimatum issued. On the other hand, they also agreed that the demands should be so extreme as to make it practically impossible for the Serbs to agree to them. When the Russian Foreign Minister Sazanov received a copy of the demands on the following day, he immediately concluded that the Austrians knew they would be unacceptable and that they must be therefore designed as a prelude to war with Serbia. He also believed that the Austrians would not have gone this far had they not been certain of German support. End quote. Also the belief began to circulate that, should the war with Serbia lead to a Europe-wide war, it was far better to fight such a war now, when the Entente was weaker, than in two years' time, when the Entente's power would eclipse that of the Triple Alliance. Thus the Serbian question, while it possibly possessed two eventualities, either World War or Serbian extinction, were both believed to be favourable in German minds. But there was still a question of a large gamble in Russia. Germany was prepared to take this gamble, as was Austria, but it is unlikely that either favoured world war over the elimination of Serbia from the Balkans. Getting what you want without really having to do much for it had been a philosophy demonstrated to its greatest potential over the last few years. The two Moroccan crises, the Bosnian crisis, all had proven to Germany and Austria that an aggressive foreign policy could reap rich rewards. 
In Austria's case, intimidation of Serbia the years before, particularly when Serbia was forced diplomatically out of Albania, created the idea that such intimidation worked. It was what they were trying again in the summer of 1914 with the ultimatum, although this time they were fully ready to escalate the issue into war. Blaming Germany for the war in the years after is, obviously, an oversimplified version of events. If anything, Austria should receive blame also for increasing the tension by sending so aggravating a message to Belgrade. A conference should have been organised where all could air their grievances and where Serbia would be instructed, not by intimidation but by moral obligation, to take the appropriate course of action with respect to its secret organisations and claims to Austrian land. Furthermore, Austria itself should establish new protocols for properly representing its various nationalistic minorities so the conflict doesn't occur within its own borders. Germany should... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Reconcile itself with Russia, France should recreate itself as a sort of peace broker, with Britain firmly supporting it. Britain should form a conference, presided over by the United States for reasons of neutrality, and inviting all parties, all countries around the world, to make plain their goals and aims. The Ottoman Empire should accept that its time for imperial rule was over, and its lands should be devolved into independent states guaranteed by the world powers. This would pacify Austro-Russian rivalries, while the Balkans themselves should be divided by linguistic and nationalistic grounds, not by the size of their individual armies. International cooperation could placate the world's fears and ensure that the Anglo-French initiative for world peace was successful. If any of the world powers actively wanted peace, if Germany was genuinely not considering war, if Austria could replace rivalry with a newfound sense of purpose, that of providing a stage for the various Central European nationalities, then both their legacies would be far greater. 
We wouldn't have Hitler, the Holocaust, the Cold War, communism in any recognisable format, North Korea, or a guilty Europe still living with the consequences of a scarring 20th century. None of those things were foreseen, obviously, but they were all preventable, even at this early stage. My point is, no attempts were made, and however unrealistic you may believe them to be in hindsight, all it ever takes is one determined power to alter the course, be it negatively or positively, to make a real difference. Tragically, as Europe hung by a thread, those within it seemed altogether determined to afflict upon themselves a relentless agony, which was cloaked in glory and heroism, but which nobody in the highest offices believed to be anything other than brutal, awful and costly. In fact, it may surprise you to learn that one of the few who had both the will and imagination to preserve the peace and his empire was already dead. Franz Ferdinand was a big believer in preserving the future of his empire through compromise. He believed that the Austro-Hungarian Empire would disintegrate if change and reform was not implemented. As a solution, he proposed what became known as the United States of Greater Austria, and a map is up on the Facebook page to show you what that looks like. Though this had not been his original idea, the architect of it, Oral Popovici, is less well known to history as responsible. Popovici was an ethnic Romanian, born in Austria-Hungary's east, and he had envisioned an empire managed federally and split into different autonomous regions, with the emperor still at its head. This new state would form a sort of Danube empire, in which hopefully the goals and names of the various minorities would be satisfied. This idea would likely never have seen the light of day, had the Emperor Franz Ferdinand not first discovered and then accepted it. Under this plan, language and cultural identification was encouraged, and the disproportionate balance of power between German and Hungarian, who in total only made up 44% of the population, would be corrected. The idea would surely encounter heavy opposition from the Hungarian part of the dual monarchy, since a direct result of the reform would have been a significant territorial loss for Hungary. The would-be emperor would be able to placate the Hungarian voice by utilising pressure from Germany, if necessary. Had the plan been brought to fruition, it is highly possible that it would have preserved the peace of Europe by giving everyone an equal voice, while it would maintain all nationalities along lines that still conformed to the Austrian Habsburg monarchy. However, as we know, Franz Ferdinand was assassinated on the 28th of June 1914, and his plans for the future of Austria-Hungary died with him for his father, Franz Joseph, was altogether unwilling to commit to any form of compromise, citing the necessity of placing German peoples at the top of the Austrian pecking order, while reluctantly allowing the Hungarians, since the 1867 compromise, to have theirs. However, the plan was not all rosy, as Julie Nikashore, in his article The United States of Greater Austria, A Step Towards the European Union, outlines. Quote, Unfortunately, the plan for the achievement of the United States of Greater Austria, besides the fact that it's not a very well-formulated plan from the structural, constitutional and judicial point of view, it represents a part, a small part, of a study that is soaked with racist ideas, having as a source the theory which bases the nation on biological premises, which makes a career in the epoch and represents one of fascism's and Nazism's roots. On the base of the creation of a multinational state, Aurel Popovici put on first the separation of the nations between the ethnographic borders, but this separation, from his view, doesn't limit to the frontiers. Along his whole book, he pleaded directly for the rejection of the cultural interference, giving as an example precisely the Jews, who, in his opinion, had succeeded to 
transform into a power that compromises the whole world by the purity of their race. End quote. World War I is the era most associated with the what-if questions of history. What if Franz Ferdinand managed to escape the assassination? Would war still have occurred? And would he have been able to implement the proposed plans for a United States of Austria? Of course, speculation is better saved for a talk episode with Sean, so that's what I'll leave the bulk of it for now. But at least I can state the obvious. Austria would have lasted far longer in its early 20th century state had it not sent that ultimatum to Serbia that was meant to provoke a war of extermination. Perhaps the blame could also be laid at Germany's feet for encouraging and even pushing Austria into making war. But to an extent, we cannot blame Germany for this because that would enable Austria to use the excuse I was just following orders, or that mean minister with the moustache told me to do it, and this would not be right. Germany, as Austria's ally, was determined to seek war that would position it on top in Europe, but Austria was still its own man, and could have played some cards of its own in order to prevent a war. The problem was that those within Austrian high command wanted a war, and found within the militaristic Germany a sympathetic ear. This podcast is not interested in assigning blame for World War I, but to an extent I would like to set the record straight, because I for one am sick and tired of the Germany started it philosophy. William Carr gives his two cents on the issue. Quote, Everything pointed to 1914 as the year of decision for Germany. She could either seize this last chance of breaking the ring of encirclement and asserting her right to absolute hegemony in Europe, or if a diplomatic victory was no longer possible, she would at least fight for hegemony in the most favourable circumstances. When a great power is prepared to run such appalling risks, it must bear a major share of responsibility for the outbreak of war should the gamble fail. This by no means exhausts the question of war guilt. Other powers contributed to the general deterioration in the international situation and committed tactical errors in July 1914. Can one be sure, in a period of feverish rearmament and bellicose nationalism, that other powers might not have acted in the same way had what they supposed were their vital interests been at stake, and had they been convinced that the balance of power was moving inexorably against them? That certainly is not intended to excuse German brinkmanship, nor minimise German responsibility for the outbreak of war. It is merely a reminder, where questions of war guilt are concerned, that the conduct of great powers should not be judged in isolation, but must always be seen in the contemporary context of international politics. End quote. The need for a preemptive strike was not just upheld in Austria to be used against Serbia, but also in Germany to be used against Russia. If Germany did not act, then her position on the continent would be surely compromised. And yet that gives too simple a justification for war, because in this German nightmare, in which they lost their position of continental dominance, France and Russia were aggressive foes determined to uproot their civilization, while Britain was the naval power that was trying to restrict Germany's dreams of empire at every possible turn. The whole notion was bogus and really frustrates me because it means that the entire reason for war was based on the invented idea in higher German circles that the moment they were no longer top of the food chain, everyone would attack them. Diplomacy could grant Germany peace. It could grant it a place in which it would naturally be Britain's greatest ally, since once Russia's power began to grow again, Britain would be looking for allies. Once again, speculation, but as opinions go, I have some supporters, among them William Carr, who notes, quote, It is abundantly clear from the evidence that the rulers of Germany were prepared to face a major war if this should prove the only way to preserve the Triple Alliance. What depressed Hallweg the most of all was the growing power of Russia. 
He shared the widespread belief in the middle class that a conflict between Slav and Putin was inevitable. The longer Germany waited, the greater the chances of Russia winning this war. He remarked to the Austrian ambassador, If war must break out, better now than in one or two years' time, when the Entente will be stronger. Such was the view of the general staff. Moltke declared in May 1914 that Germany was now ready for war, but by 1917, when Russian rearmament was complete, Germany's strategic situation would be practically hopeless. End quote. Serbia accepted the unacceptable. Well, at least most of it, except for the sixth provision, which would have allowed Austrian agents into Serbia to conduct its investigation on the assassination. The other powers of Europe were relatively incredulous. Britain and France did not wish to fight Germany, fearing that their militaries, Britons in particular, were not up to scratch. Just like the rest of Europe, Britain was forced to go through the same slow processes before war could effectively commence. Though the sending of the ultimatum to Serbia did send shockwaves around Europe, and the dignitaries of the powers lent their voices to the swirling vortex of letters, arguments and counter-arguments, one thing emerged from the crisis. That Austria would not compromise. Sir Edward Grey, British Foreign Secretary, made his country's most concrete contribution towards worldwide peace when he proposed a conference involving the great powers. He hoped to defuse the situation by getting Germany to pressure Austria and by getting Russia to pressure Serbia. But Wilhelm rejected the notes sent through to him, one of which had picked up on the British-held belief that Austria's ultimatum was an impossible demand, to which Wilhelm replied, aghast, What impossible demand? How am I to force Austria's hand? What does he mean by impossible? German diplomacy slumped here, as many German diplomats were encouraged to claim that they knew nothing about the Austrian ultimatum to Serbia, an act which saw Britain perceive Germany as something of a menace in foreign relations. Gray then wrote to Sazanov, Russian foreign minister, I do not consider that public opinion here would or ought to sanction our going to war over a Serbian quarrel. If, however, war does take place, the development of other issues may draw us into it, and I am therefore anxious to prevent it. War had been averted so many times before, surely the European powers could do the same again. But Europe was not the same. In fact, it was totally different from the time of the Moroccan or Bosnian crises. The Austro-German camp held up war as the only way of preserving their sovereignty, and in secret circles plotted the downfall of the countries whose diplomats they often sat beside or opposite at the conference table. On July 24th, British Prime Minister Herbert Asquith wrote a letter to his longtime friend Venetia Stanley informing her of the situation. The situation is just about as bad as it can possibly be. Austria has sent a bullying and humiliating ultimatum to Serbia, who cannot possibly comply with it, and demanded an answer within 48 hours, failing which she will march. This means, almost inevitably, that Russia will come to the scene in defence of Serbia, and in defiance of Austria, and if so, it is difficult for Germany and France to refrain from lending a hand to one side or the other. Happily, there seems to be no apparent reason why we should be anything more than spectators. Asquith had been partly right. Germany did not realistically expect to have to fight Britain, believing that her interest was not solidly behind Balkan issues to justify a war to her public. However, even as Serbian Prime Minister Nikola Pesic recognised Serbia could not accept the terms of the ultimatum, and as Austria then broke off relations with Serbia on July 25th, there was the real awareness within the British government that Britain could not allow France to be assailed to the extent that Germany reigned supreme on the continent. That would seriously have contradicted her balance of power foreign policy, which necessitated an even playing field in European power politics. Most within Britain could see the war coming in Europe, 
and knew that their country would have to take part. However, the British public were not willing to believe in a war far away in the Balkans, so the need to find something, some justification, to spur the people into war was reaching its critical stages here. Serbia had begun mobilising its armies when Austria had broken off relations with it. Serbia had not agreed to the terms of the document, primarily the issue with Austrian police entering their lands, and this was taken as a refusal on the part of Austria, though Vienna had never expected all the terms to pass. Serbia had also been provided with last-minute signs from Russia that the Russian military machine was beginning preparations for war, but not against Germany. The Russian partial mobilisation on the 24th and 25th of July had been designed to prove to Austria the lengths that Russia was willing to go, and only her southernmost regions were mobilised, with the hope that Germany would see Russia's intention to keep the conflict localised, if not keep it from happening at all. When Russia received word that Austria had rejected utterly the Serbian reply and had broken off diplomatic relations on the 25th, she upped the already considerable support she had sent Serbia in the beginning of the crisis. Although Russia had initially advised Serbia to accept the terms, Russo-Serb meetings had developed a series of judgments on the ultimatum on the night of July 24th, whereby it was concluded that Serbia should seek a compromise on the Austrian terms. Failing that, Austria was allowing 48 hours before the ultimatum expired, so Serbia had until the 26th to do something militarily. But Serbia did not need two days, she needed only one night. Having received vocal support from Russia and accepting most of the terms, on July 25th, Serbian Prime Minister Nikola Pesic sent a long reply appealing to Austria's better judgement and sense. In response to this, Austria broke off relations and began to mobilise, to which Serbia followed suit, and so did Russia. The ever-present war party in Germany were beside themselves when the Kaiser returned from a Norwegian cruise and threw their plans for war into the shredder. As William Carr explains, though, by this stage, Germany seemed keen to operate without its Kaiser. Quote, On July 28th, Wilhelm II suddenly intervened in the crisis. Back from his Norwegian cruise, he decided that the Serbian reply was highly satisfactory and ought to be accepted by Austria, who must abandon her plans for war and only occupy part of Serbia temporarily as a guarantee of good behaviour. The Foreign Office was thoroughly alarmed by the Emperor's characteristic change of heart. Holwig and Yagov took evasive action. They passed a proposal for the Emperor's plans without comment, taking care to suppress the fact that it had emanated from the Kaiser, who was willing to mediate between Austria and Serbia. End quote. Two things come off this. The first is how confused and incoherent Germany's foreign policy sounds. The second is how the influential war party within Germany is often forgotten, and how these few men may be held directly responsible for the subsequent war. Holwig, the German Chancellor, and Yagov, the German Foreign Minister, seemed determined to push for war between Austria and Serbia. Not because they wanted a world war, but more likely because they wished to gamble that Russia would remain quiet, and thus Serbia could be extinguished. The whims of the Kaiser seemed to change with a characteristic frequency, and his mood often determined state policy. In this case, passing on to Austria that the Emperor of their ally was reluctant to go to war would have portrayed Germany as an amateurish, unreliable power unsure of what it wanted, and at this stage the Kaiser's advisers became key directors in policy themselves. Those in high up enough positions acted with the power that the Kaiser was meant to have, as we'll see in later episodes when Ludendorff and Hindenburg appear on the scene. Jakob and Holweg pushed for the Austrian act of war on Serbia, unaware of the chain reactions it was about to cause in terms of a years-long, exhaustive and disastrous conflict 
but also mindful of the very real possibility that if Russia mobilized, she would force the hand of a Germany, following by the book, The Strategy of the Schleifen Plan. Austria declared war on Serbia and began bombarding Belgrade on July 28th. The next act depended on Tsar Nicholas II. What would he do, now that his ally Serbia was under Austrian attack? If he made war on Austria, then the series of alliances would compel Germany and perhaps Italy to join the war against her, and even with the support of France, the Tsar did not like those odds. However, if you'll remember from before, the Russian army was already partially mobilised. In practice, it was barely a fifth of the entire Russian land army, and it was intended to scare Austria into backing down, but what it actually did was put Germany on edge. Ironically, the Kaiser sent a note to the Tsar informing him of the war between Austria and Serbia and asking for his approval, to which Tsar Nicholas II replied, I'm glad you are back. I appeal to you to help me. An ignoble war has been declared in a weak country. Soon I shall be overwhelmed by pressure brought upon me to take extreme measures which will lead to war. To try and avoid such a calamity as a European war, I beg you, in the name of our old friendship, to do what you can, to stop your allies from going too far. Helmut von Malk the Younger, named after his uncle, who had led German forces into Paris in 1870, had already ordered Austria mobilise its forces fully on July 29th, which it did as Russia decided what to do. Maltke worried that Russia would mobilise too far for the Schleifen plan to be of effect, but in actual fact, Russia did not wish to antagonise Germany by fully mobilising. Tsar Nicholas II sent Wilhelm II the following telegram, and it seemed as if the two cousins really could work things out before war occurred. I thank you heartily for your mediation, which begins to give one hope that all may yet end peacefully. It is technically impossible to our military preparations which were obligatory owing to Austria's mobilisation. We are far from wishing war. As long as the negotiations with Austria on Serbia's account are taking place, my troops shall not make any provocative action. I give you my solemn word for this. The Tsar was informed, though, of von Holweg's drastic note to Sazonov on July 31st, which ordered Russia to cancel its partial mobilisation or face repercussions. If Germany was expecting Russia to back down and face yet another humiliation, then in this case she severely underestimated her. Malka knew time was of the essence, and he strikes me as the kind of guy who just wanted to get on with things. The Schleifen plan demanded Germany attack France while Russia was mobilising. To do so after would mean two enormous armies on her doorstep, so von Malka felt pressed to act. If Russia accepted the German demands, she would be humiliated, and Austria would be free to exterminate Serbia. But if Russia refused, she would have to first fully mobilise, which meant that the other part of the plan, that of war against France, would have to take place within that small window of opportunity, which could last anything up to two weeks. Russian statesmen collectively decided against caving to German pressure, and instead ordered general mobilisation of her entire armed forces. As Russia struggled with the breadth of this enormous task, Germany ordered she stop struggling and just be a good Russia. Russia refused to comply with the unrealistic demands, which Germany knew would happen, and on August 1st, Germany declared war on Russia. Now a slave to the unchangeable terms of the Schleifen plan, Germany began itching to make war on France too, out of necessity of course, and so looked for a pretext. On the 31st of July, Germany had asked France what course of action she would take in the event of a war between Germany and Russia. France vaguely replied that she'd act in accordance with her interests. 
At that time, Wilhelm II was made aware of a note from Sir Edward Grey, which seemed to suggest that Britain would stay out of a war involving Germany and Russia. Wilhelm, blinded by his desire to remain at peace with Britain and hopeful for a quick and beneficial resolution to the conflict, asked Malka to change the German attack plans. Malka said, sure, I'll just alter the plans that Germany had been rehearsing for the past 20 years and make it up as I go along. Of course Malka was incredulous and incensed by the Kaiser's request and likely muttered something about the Kaiser's ignorance and failure to understand the plans that the big boys had. But soon after, Wilhelm was informed that the note from Grey's office had been designed as a speculative piece of work and the Kaiser was persuaded that the Steifen plan remained the best German course of action. And so, Malka was given approval to seek war with France before Russia could mobilise. British Prime Minister Herbert Asquith noted to his friend Venetia Stanley the impression that the German propositions regarding France left on him. The European situation is at least one degree worse than it was yesterday, and has not been improved by a rather shameless attempt on the part of Germany to buy our neutrality during the war by promises that she will not annex French territory, except colonies, or Holland or Belgium. There is something very crude and childlike about German diplomacy. Meanwhile, the French are beginning to press in the opposite sense, as the Russians have been doing for some time. The city, which is in a terrible state of depression and paralysis, is at this time dead set against English intervention. Why were European statesmen allowing their countries to slip into a war with a fatal sense of destiny? The answer to this question is, not all of them were. Winston Churchill, for one, was, as First Lord of the Admiralty in Britain, overseeing British naval developments in preparation for war while also vocally questioning the stumble towards war that appeared to be happening before his very eyes. In his series of books he wrote after the event, entitled The World Crisis, 1911-1918, Churchill gives an account which, while from a solidly British perspective, also sheds light on the actual experience of standing near the forefront of your homeland and watching it slide into war. In the first book, covering 1911-1914, Churchill holds up the German naval plans and subsequent naval race, he examines the crises in the Balkans, and he also makes the observation that surely war would not be allowed to take place, even while nobody seemed to be actively trying to stop it. The following quote is, of course, but are a few imagine it in Churchill's voice, so I'll do my best impression. It is nothing. It is less than nothing. It is too foolish, too fantastic to be thought of in the 20th century. Or is it fire and murder leaping out of the darkness at our throats? Torpedoes ripping at the bellies of half-awakened ships? A sunrise on a vanished naval supremacy? And an island well guarded hitherto, at last defenceless? No, it is nothing. No one would do such things. Civilization has climbed above such perils the interdependence of nations in trade and traffic, the sense of public law, the Hague Convention, liberal principles, the Labour Party, high finance, Christian charity, common sense, have rendered such nightmares impossible. Are you quite sure? It would be a pity to be wrong. There seemed to be no stopping the unexplainable march towards war. Now that Germany was at war with Russia, she had to destroy France. There was simply no other way to win the war. No thought was given to diplomacy anymore, and despite the years it had to work, it had failed. France received a German ultimatum on the 1st of August, which demanded she retreat from a key number of her forts and submit to a German occupation. By this time, Wilhelm had been convinced again of the Schleifen plan, and German troops had already invaded Luxembourg, 
which would be the stop-off point to the Belgian invasion that would bring the German forces into France. France refused to weaken herself or submit to the German demands. She had mobilised at least partially already in order to come to the defence of Russia, so she implemented general mobilisation that day before Germany sent an official declaration of war to her on August the 3rd. Upon that announcement, Germany was officially at war on two fronts, already marching into Belgium, and the war Bismarck had sought to avoid since its inception of the German Empire was finally on. On August 4th, after days of marching through their lands anyway, Germany declared war on Belgium. On that day, Britain's ambassador to Germany, Sir Edward Goschen, sent an ultimatum to German Foreign Minister Yagov informing him that Belgium's sovereignty had been guaranteed by Britain, France and ironically Germany in the form of a conference as early as 1839, and that if Germany did not withdraw completely from Belgian soil by midnight on August the 4th, the two countries would be at war. Britain was upholding this Treaty of Belgian Sovereignty, while Germany ignored it, little suspecting that it would give Britain the casus belli it needed to declare war on Germany. Hours before the deadline passed, Chancellor Holweg had made a speech in the Reichstag, in which he admitted that the German invasions of Luxembourg and Belgium were a violation of international law, but reasoned that Germany was in a state of necessity, and necessity knows no law. Thus, the deadline was allowed to expire. As German forces invaded Belgian territory, and as Austria stood at the walls of Belgrade, Russian soldiers prepared to advance into East Prussia, and Britain's fleet disappeared into the North Sea. The world was at war, and the complex systems of alliances which had been designed to ensure peace had instead created a situation in which every nation believed they were fighting a defensive war, for honourable reasons, and that God was steadfastly at their side. British Prime Minister Herbert Asquith pronounced that the deadline had passed on the morning of August 5th, and that Britain and Germany were now officially at war. But little thought was given to the fact that the war would not be over by Christmas, but that this war, the war to end all wars, was merely the opening chapter of the bloodiest century in human history. And that, folks, is the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed following on the narrative we began in episode 20.1, and that the war to come, although it was completely ridiculous in its inception, can at least be explained from its origins. Thank you for joining me, and I hope that you'll join me next time for episode 20.5, when we look at the opening salvos of the First World War. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks! deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.